Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 136, The Wheels Start Coming Off. The results of the September 1930 elections were not well received by Chancellor Bruning and the powers that be around him. The Nazis becoming the second largest party in Germany, along with the gains made by the KPD, would mean that anti-Weimar groups would be well represented in the Reichstag, and they could be counted upon to disrupt everything Bruning's appointed government would propose. After all, they represented the popular will. Bruning represented a distant President Hindenburg. Almost immediately, it became apparent that the Reichstag would no longer function as a proper body. The 107 representatives the Nazis sent in would show up in their brown shirt uniforms, and joined by their KPD counterparts on the other side of the political spectrum, would begin dragging out and objecting to every piece of business that was put on the table. The Bruning government only survived and new elections avoided on account of the SPD choosing to stand aside and decline to vote against that government. They didn't vote for its approval, but as Hindenburg indicated that, yes, Bruning would remain in place, the rest of the establishment simply let it go. The alternative was another election where the Nazis stood far too much to gain. It was a far cry from the widespread resistance during the summer of 1930, and a sign that Bruning's more centrist opponents now realized the true stakes they were facing. The nation's liberals and social democrats no longer fought to push their agendas, but rather tried to keep the republic going, even in a crippled fashion. They blinded themselves to the fact that many of the men around Hindenburg had many of the same goals as the Nazis, and hadn't already joined hands simply because they were perceived as too uncontrollable. Another election from that point could very well deliver Adolf Hitler into power outright, given that now people who were reluctant to back him in September now saw him as a viable leader. The economy was further rattled by the Nazi victory. Foreign capital accelerated its retreat out of the country, half of the Reichsbank's gold reserves were pulled in a month, which in turn forced interest rates to be increased again which, for a nation in a depression, meant that the economy was only further stifled. The feeling was that the Nazi ascendancy was only the beginning, and over in France, Briand lamented that all he had worked to build during the 20s was sure to be undone. He was correct. Briand cut off economic talks that were to be held and commented on the Nazis, what cries of hatred, what shouts of murder. In contrast, the Daily Mail in the UK ran a column praising Hitler as a bulwark against communism. Now, that wasn't quite in step with mainstream opinion, but it was coming from a major newspaper that reached millions, and other large papers were decidedly neutral on the Nazi triumph. German liberals varied between recognizing the danger they were in and coping via hurling base insults. Falling back on attacking Hitler's past as a postcard painter and homeless man, which might not have been the best way to go for a nation in the depths of economic despair, and dismissing his political program as insane which, hey, that, that's fair. But all the while, they ignored that the electorate was in Hitler's corner at this point. Ernst Toller, the avant-garde poet who had briefly led the Bavarian Soviet way back in 1919, and longtime listeners might remember from episode 25, had since then become a political commentator. His line was, Chancellor Hitler is waiting just outside the gates of Berlin. For once, there is truth to the phrase, it's one minute to midnight. The feeling of Germany's Jews was uh, understandably concerned. As a community, they felt pretty well integrated into the larger German one. 
So seeing millions of their countrymen turn to a violent, fringe party that declared them to be subhuman was intensely hurtful and justifiably saw it as a personal attack on them. It was also shocking, with many Jews being taken completely by surprise. The immediate response was to get going on public discourse, reminding the rest of the nation that they were every bit as German as everyone else, committed patriots. But still, the unthinkable idea started to creep into the minds of some of Germany's Jews, that maybe they would need to leave the only home they had known in the face of implacable hostility. Bruning himself refused to entertain bringing Hitler into government, saying that the Nazi success was only a temporary fever. He would continue to govern through the backing of Hindenburg instead of the Reichstag. His fellow conservatives by and large favored a strategy of easing Nazis into government postings in order to co-opt them and make them part of the establishment, naively thinking that the brown-shirted agitators would lose their fire once in positions of power. Bruning rebuffed Hitler's proposal for a coalition, but did meet with him on October 5th. The meeting didn't go well. Bruning mainly wanted to press Hitler to keep his attacks in the Reichstag muted so that they could secure a new $125 million foreign loan. Hitler, in response, went on an hour-long diatribe where he promised to annihilate his political enemies. If uh, Bruning had not understood what he was dealing with before, he did then. The opening session of the new Reichstag on October 13th was a predictable disaster. During the roll call, Goebbels led the Nazis in droning chants of Heil Hitler. The Nazi reps quickly got into a shouting match with the KPD guys that nearly escalated into a brawl. Gregor Strasser addressed the body and told them point blank, Right now, we support the Constitution and we support the Weimar democracy, as long as it suits us. He continued, and on democratic grounds, we will demand all positions of power, and then keep them as long as we wish. Hitler himself was not present. Remember that Austria had stripped him of his citizenship, and he hadn't gotten a German one just yet. He was a stateless person and was hanging around the nearby Kaiserhof Hotel, keeping an open ear for news. The SA, for their part, celebrated the opening session by going on a rampage, vandalizing Jewish businesses all around Berlin. Hitler would immediately condemn the violence, but refused to stand the SA down. The day's events were widely denounced abroad, but did little to hurt his standing back at home. Already back in September, he had met with former Chancellor Wilhelm Cuono, whom Hitler had denounced in no uncertain terms during the hyperinflation crisis of 1923. Cuono, now a shipping magnate in Hamburg, apparently didn't harbor any hard feelings. He brought Hitler into the Hamburg National Club, a body of the city's elite businessmen. On January 5, 1931, Goering arranged a first meeting with Hallmar Schacht, the former leader of the Reichsbank and still influential in business circles, which was also attended by Fritz Thyssen, the steel magnate who had been a long-standing contributor to the Nazi coffers. These meetings opened up still more meetings, of which many were arranged by Walter Funk. Funk came from a background in financial journalism, which is where he got his contacts from and who would eventually become the economic minister of Nazi Germany. Hitler assured them all that his anti-capitalist rhetoric was in no way associated with Marxism or socialism. And while some, like Schacht and Thyssen, certainly saw things his way, many would hedge their bets with regard to the upstart movement. That being said, the fact that they were talking at all was a major step up from where Hitler and his cohort were just coming from. The old image of Hitler as a fringe figure was rapidly being forgotten in only a few months' time. 
which was good for him because the Nazi shenanigans in the Reichstag were far from over. Their antics brought all business in that body to a halt, and finally, on February 9, 1931, a bill was introduced to change the rules of debate in order to restore a semblance of sanity. The Nazis and the KPD quickly marched out of the meeting hall to prevent a quorum, then marched back in. Then, when a vote was started, they marched back out, then back in. Then a vote was attempted again, and they marched out, and back in again. This went on until 3 a.m. on the morning of the 10th. This enraged the rest of the Reichstag, and all 300 other members present came together and voted for the bill out of frustration, overcoming the obnoxious trick of procedure. Goering announced that the Nazis would henceforth be boycotting the Reichstag entirely. Hugenberg, not to be outdone in attacking the institutions of the Republic, also withdrew his DNVP. On March 26th, the remainder of the Reichstag decided they would adjourn themselves for the next six months, giving themselves a spring and summer vacation. Bruning no longer had a legislature in which to pass legislation, but that wasn't a problem for him in reality. That was actually great. He'd just have President Hindenburg pass legislation by decree and everything would be fine. Because Hitler was not Bruning's only problem. There was still a depression going on. On that front, Bruning was caught between the forces of nationalism and internationalism. And being a nationalist himself, he would ultimately choose the former. Brion had recovered himself enough by early 1931 that he was again dangling a sizable French loan in front of Bruning. There were conditions, though. Brion expected that the young plan would be honored, that far-right demonstrations against France would be curtailed, and that Germany would not move ahead on building a pair of battlecruisers that were being planned. Publicly, Bruning was obligated to go for the money. Behind closed doors, he didn't want it. His entire aim was to get Germany out from under the Young Plan, and the quickest way to do it was to justifiably plead poverty and to declare the whole agreement void. If he took the money and the economy rebounded even a little, then he might not be able to bail on the plan so convincingly. Then again, he couldn't just refuse the loan full stop. That would provoke public backlash as well. He opted to kill two birds with one stone. He quietly approved an initiative cooked up by his foreign minister in March 1930 and backed the creation of a customs union between Germany and Austria. This meant that there would be no economic barriers between the two states. It was also in direct violation of both of their peace treaties. The French response was to pull the loan offer. Bruning had gotten away from binding himself to the French and advanced a long-term German interest. Of course, this also meant the depression would continue unabated at a time when Franco-German cooperation could have actually helped both their nations. Remember that at that moment, France was actually doing rather well for itself, but was rapidly reaching the point where the depression would finally strike there as well. And while I'm not optimistic enough to say that they could have fended off the depression together, they certainly could have eased each other's pain. Instead, advancing the interests of nationalists carried the day. June 1931 saw Bruning again go on the financial offensive, issuing another set of austerity laws that reduced the budget and ergo public funding still more than he had a year previously. Handily, the Reichstag was not around to object. To try and deflect attention, Bruning enlisted the UK Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald to help him convince the Americans to suspend or even cancel all war-related debts both ones owed by Germany under the Young Plan and those of the Entente that had been taken out in the war years. MacDonald readily agreed, and a pressure campaign commenced on Washington. While many Americans were against the idea, after all, it would only directly favor foreign debtors, many of Herbert Hoover's advisors 
recognized that propping up the Bruning government in the face of Hitler was the preferable outcome. The president agreed, and on June 20th, the Hoover moratorium was announced. As I covered in earlier episodes, it was a one-year suspension on war debts, but in practice it became a permanent debt relief, albeit at the cost of good economic relations with the U.S., When the year-long term expired, the situation had changed considerably, and as part of the 1932 Lausanne Conference, the Young Plan was done away with entirely. Wrangled over for years and used as an effective cudgel by the Nazis, the plan was never implemented. The conditions that were created by the political brinksmanship surrounding it, though, those were still very real and would only get worse. Bruning could not savor his victory over the moratorium, as the Depression was about to get upgraded to great. Bruning had not made himself popular with the multiple rounds of budget cuts across 1930 and 31, and the effect of reduced spending was deflation. Prices went down, the currency strengthened, and exports became expensive as the value of the mark went up, which meant that economic activity slowed down, there was less money in the economy, so those lowered prices weren't really enjoyed by the unemployed who no longer had money to spend on much of anything. Even if Bruning had wanted to turn the economy around, and as I just pointed out with the customs union incident, he was more concerned with pushing nationalist interests, there might not have been the tools available to do it. The German banking system was in a fragile state and couldn't support deficit spending on its own. The foreign credit market was leery lending out to Germany, and he had just scorned the French. One strategy was to abandon the gold standard and decouple the currency from the national gold reserves, but allowing a spell of inflation to take effect was opposed by the major political parties. Despite governing by decree, Bruning was sensitive to provoking the Reichstag into actually reconvening, and opted not to antagonize the wishes of its members. The actual voters, though, didn't quite see it that way, and viewed Bruning's inaction as indifference to their misery, instead of there just not really being a lot of good options. Bruning himself preferred to avoid foreign loans and deficit spending, If Germany could function within its means, then the nation was on the road to true independence, even if it meant widespread human misery. Then came the Austrian banking crisis with the collapse of the Credit Anstalt in May 1931. I covered the details back in episode 124, and just to summarize here, the largest bank in Austria was revealed to be holding a big bag of toxic assets which led to its collapse, and thanks to a slow intervention from the Austrian government, their financial sector melted down. Now, Germany's own banking system was shaky as hell, and the Austrian crisis spooked people on the other side of the border, as many suspected that German banks were in about the same shape as the Austrian ones. Today, we would call this contagion, a spiral of fear inducing a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure, and that's what happened here. It began on July 1st, 1931, when a textile company called Nordvala had a little whoopsie. The company had purchased a year's worth of wool early in the year with the expectation that some inflationary measures would be taken later on. Basically, they bet that they would buy the wool at deflated prices, then sell their product when prices hiked later. Problem was that prices didn't hike at all. They just kept going down, which meant they took a major loss and went under. And of course, they didn't buy the wool with money on hand. They had taken out a loan with a major bank, Darmstadter und National Bank. The bank itself then went under after taking a bath on account of the defaulted loan. The dominoes immediately started falling and the entire banking sector was subject to runs as customers withdrew their deposits in a panic. 
This caused banks to dial back offering loans, meaning that capital was further sucked out of a system already hurting for it. The National Bank, the Reichsbank, was already hard up trying to fund the operations of the state. It was totally incapable of stemming the tide of bank failures at the same time. By July 13th, the German banking system shut down to try and break up the atmosphere of panic. When banks reopened on the 15th, it was only for very basic and immediate functions, such as honoring paychecks and pensions. Normal operations resumed on August 5th, and by then, extraordinary measures were put in place to prop up the financial sector. Throughout July, initiatives were made to change the rules of doing business in Germany. A new state-operated bank was set up to provide loans to businesses, similar to the Instituto Mobiliere Italiano I mentioned back in episode 128 that Italy would set up in November of that same year. Foreign credits were frozen in place, and their repayment was carefully monitored by the government moving forward. This also gave the German government a little bit of blackmail material as foreign creditors would now have to play ball if they ever wanted to see their money back. The transfer of gold outside the country was restricted, and in a big, if underhanded move, inflationary policy was unofficially started. Before, Germany was bound to keep gold reserves of up to 40% of the total currency in the economy. Without acknowledging any change, that was lowered to 10%, allowing for more money to become available. When I say without acknowledging, I mean that if you went into the Reichsbank and asked a manager what the gold-to-currency ratio was, they'd reply, 40% of the money supply would be matched by gold reserves. Except that wasn't true. It was 10%. Officials wouldn't say that, though. They'd insist everything was the same as it always was. Germany was now partially off the standard. Unofficially, partially. All this intervention was unprecedented in the Weimar Republic and vastly extended the government's control of the economy. Which, wouldn't you know it, would come in very handy for some certain people who would come to control that government in just two years' time. Not that in the short term this meant much, the damage to the economy and confidence in it was done. I rattled off the ever-expanding scope of unemployment just a couple weeks ago, that acceleration got underway during this summer crisis. Industrial production had actually increased slightly in the first half of 1931, and the overall economy had at least stabilized. Now, the descent into new depths of misery began in earnest. Industrial production fell by 24%, and exports fell by 30%. It didn't help at all that the UK completely abandoned the gold standard in September, followed shortly thereafter by Japan and other major economies. And by the end of the year, they were massively outcompeting German businesses in terms of trade. And while the money supply was increased, the gold standard couldn't be abandoned entirely, which meant that the German mark remained a strong currency compared to its competitors, leaving the nation weak on exports. Brüning, however, could only do so much, even with his decrees, and as his popularity turned to dust, his political enemies began circling hungrily. The most obvious foes were the ultra-right, foremost Hitler and the Nazis. But Alfred Hugenberg still dreamed of forming a joint coalition of the far-right that would allow him to ride the Nazi coattails to power. Hugenberg managed to sell Hitler on the, on the idea of a joint conference of the entire far-right, with the aim to restore the old political alliance that had fought against the Young Plan in 1929. They converged in the resort town of Bad Harsburg on October 11th, and a real who's who was in attendance. In addition to the Nazis, brown shirts, and Hugenberg's DNVP, there was the Pan-German League, a contingent of the Stahlhelm, which you'll remember from last season were another far-right 
paramilitary-slash-social group similar to the SA. There were members of the Hohenzollern royal family, old Free Corps leaders like General Ludwitz, who had been the figurehead leader of the Kapusch, and General von der Goltz, who had commanded the Free Corps units in Latvia. General Hans von Siecht, now out of the army for some time thanks to Schleicher's machinations, made an appearance as a member of the Reichstag. Yalmar Schacht, still having no official standing but commanding respect as an economist, made an appearance to condemn Brüning's policies, which caused a stir in the business world at the time, as he was accused of undermining the government's response to the Depression. Which, yeah, that was indeed the point. And then there was still more lesser politicians just looking for an in. The place was just teeming with far-right types looking to network. The site of a sleepy resort town in the forests of northern Germany was selected because a Nazi had secured the local interior minister office, meaning that the state's police wouldn't bother them. Hitler was in an uncertain place at that moment. Gelli had committed suicide the month prior, and the political paralysis of the Republic during most of 1931 was wearing on his nerves. The economic stabilization earlier in the year had not done the Nazis any favors, and many people were adopting a wait-and-see view. That was going to change very quickly, but those things did still take at least a little bit of time. He had just come from Berlin, where he had spent October 10th meeting first with Chancellor Brüning and then President Hindenburg. Brüning was one thing, the president was quite another. Hitler craved power like a junkie, and he understood that he would need Hindenburg's cooperation to ultimately get it. The meeting with Brüning went predictably bad. Uh, Bruning had decided to bring the Nazis into government in exchange for their support on approving an amendment to the Constitution. Hindenburg was up for re-election in spring 1932, and the old field marshal really didn't want to go through the bother of running again. He wanted to stay president, he just didn't want to go through an election. Bruning, depending on the grand old man of the nation politically, was happy to oblige him. The amendment would cancel the upcoming election and keep Hindenburg on as president for life. But that was a step neither man felt comfortable enough doing through decree. They'd need the Reichstag to approve it. And that meant bringing on board the Nazis. Hitler, though, opposed the idea as he wanted to keep open the option of running for president himself if the electoral chances broke his way. Brüning offered to let Hitler have a little sit-down with Hindenburg that afternoon. Maybe the field marshal would be able to command the former corporal where the chancellor could not. Hitler had not yet met Hindenburg up to this point, and honestly, the old man wasn't the glad-handing type, so that wasn't unusual. He was still the biggest war hero of the nation, and Hitler at that point still admired him. Plus, simply being seen with Hindenburg would confer additional legitimacy onto Hitler as a leader. According to Hitler, the meeting went great. He talked Hindenburg's ear off about all the issues of the day, and the president had listened with quiet approval. Hindenburg, on the other hand, thought Hitler's long diatribes marked him as an effective public speaker, but was unimpressed with his character. That poor impression would only become clear later, and Hitler had a conference to attend. He left Berlin at 7 p.m. on the 10th and traveled by car to Bad Harzburg. Given the prior day's events, he wasn't in the mood for a gathering with people who thought of themselves as his potential partners. The tables had turned, and the carnival of the far right was not necessarily something he needed. Everyone in attendance had just a couple years ago been head and shoulders above him and the Nazis, and Hugenberg still somehow saw himself as the master of ceremonies even then. He looked around at the assortment of has-beens who dominated during the 20s and saw scraps to be picked clean. Goebbels himself privately commented that the conference was purely a matter of tactics. 
The non-Nazis were people to be allied with on account of their connections, and if they had any use after what would later be a purely Nazi triumph, then they'd be absorbed. They all needed Hitler far more than Hitler needed them, although most would be loath to admit it. The morning started with a parade, and Hitler immediately made the power move of watching his SA contingent march past, and then leaving before the Stahlhelm and other groups could make their own appearance. He skipped entirely a lunch of the conference's leaders that was organized by Hugenberg, and when he took the podium to deliver his speech that afternoon, he made no mention of any community or alliance of the far right. There was only Hitler and only the Nazis. Hugenberg deluded himself and those around him into thinking that the summit was a success, resulting in the so-called Harsberg Front. In reality, there was no effective alliance, and Hitler did as he pleased politically, falling back on appeals to their unity only when it suited him. A week later, Hitler was in Brunswick for a purely Nazi celebration. A hundred thousand SA men had been shipped in via trains and trucks for a massive parade through the city. The show of power during the torchlight march during the night pressed home to any that were paying attention that Hitler did not need political friends. He had legions of the angry and fearful masses already marching to his tune. And as the winter approached, those legions would only get more numerous. Bruning's too-little-too-late policies were putting millions out of work, and daily life in the nation was grinding to a halt. Bruning survived the no-confidence vote in the reassembled Reichstag soon after the Bad Harsberg summit, but his position was increasingly untenable. He had been appointed by Hindenburg at the suggestion of the cabal that surrounded the president, but his purpose was to undermine and dismantle the democracy, not lead what was to come. And as it became clear that Weimar's days were increasingly becoming numbered, the stakes correspondingly rose. Bruning could be disposed of, and in due time, absolutely would. But what would replace him to finish the work of winding the Republic down was now much more of an open question. Men like Hindenburg and Schleicher thought they had things under control, but they still couldn't properly reckon with the popular following the Nazis had built. Their obsessions were with the Republic in general and combating Marxists in particular. The street hooligans were a hindrance to be co-opted and controlled only. But next week, we move on to the events of 1932, and that will be the year that the establishment finally began to realize that they were in way over their heads. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.